Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. All right, welcome everybody. It is Friday. It is 1 p.m. on the West Coast, which means one thing. It is the Veterans Founder Podcast. I am your host, Josh Carter, and uh, unfortunately, Carmen Nazario is not here this week, but we wish her well. Hopefully, she feels better. Um, but we have a great show for you this week. We have James Schmeling, who is one of the founders of Neurals, a 3D printing supply chain packaging company. I'm really excited. James is a great friend, and I can't wait to get him on the show. If you are unfamiliar with the show, every week we bring in veterans or military spouse folk that are building amazing companies. And that could be, you know, we've had people from doing automotive and remote uh, lawnmowers. We've had them all. It's been pretty amazing. And and James is one of those folks that within the entrepreneurial ecosystem for veterans and military spouse, he is sort of that sort of centerpiece for that ecosystem. So, again, really thrilled to have him here. So for the next hour, we're going to get to know James, get to know Neurals, get to know IVMF, and a lot of things that he's done in his career. But uh, first, let's bring him in. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh. Thrilled to be here. Absolutely, man. The last time you and I saw each other, we were in San Francisco, and I took you out to your first Vietnamese uh, experience, your your first Vietnamese food uh, experience, which was so thrilling for me, by the way. Uh, it was pretty awesome, and I can't believe that I made it to the age that I am now without having had Vietnamese food. Oh, man. And, and so for those unfamiliar, I grew up in the Bay Area, but there's this place in San Francisco called Toulon. If you're in San Francisco, you have to go to. And I brought James there. I usually bring all, all of my friends, close friends to there. And so I was really excited. Plus, I got a chance to just kind of shoot the shit with you. Yeah, it was great. It was uh, an interesting neighborhood, and I can see why it's a popular <laughs> hole in the wall. Yeah, it is definitely an interesting neighborhood. They call it the Sleazy Six for a reason. Uh, so, James, we are—I I know you well, but my audience does not. So, I want to make sure that we just tell the story of James. So. The first thing I want to talk to you about is your experience in the Air Force. You're an Air Force veteran. I want to talk to you a little bit about what that process was for you, that uh, when you came out of school, you said, I'm going to join the Air Force. What, what was that process for you like? Well, it's sort of interesting for me to think back on it and how I came to that decision. Um, I was literally in a shopping mall one afternoon, and the recruiter's office was open, and so I popped in to have a conversation with them between my junior and senior year of high school and uh, made a decision that hmm, this is a great way to see the world. I'm going to go do that and signed up for delayed entry program. And then a year later, graduated from high school at 3.30 in the afternoon and about 7.30 that evening, I was on an airplane on my way to basic training for uh, the Air Force. I just took a a couple of hours to say goodbye and and off I went. Uh, I couldn't wait to get out of small town Iowa, to be honest. That is amazing. And when I think back about that, it's it's like that was such a transformational thing for me to do with my life. I spent the next six years in the Air Force and working in a tiny little organization, a little over a thousand people, the Air Force Technical Applications Center. And we did uh, nuclear treaty verification and detection of weapons of mass destruction and all of those sorts of things. So it's... um, 
you know, looking at uh, seismometers all over the world and you know, fixing those in a couple of places and and uh, having the opportunity to go overseas and live and work in Spain at, you know, a little 12-person detachment in the middle of nowhere and, and just, you know, have a really interesting opportunity to do that. But the thing that was kind of cool for me is, you know, this little organization of a thousand folks, you know, probably 70 percent of them had college degrees. And so that was my first exposure to the idea that, you know, I could go to college. It wasn't really something that uh, I, as a first generation uh, college student, had thought about beforehand. And there was like, yeah, why wouldn't you go? I was like, yeah, OK, why wouldn't I go? So when I got out of the Air Force, I, I went back home to Iowa, decided it wasn't such a bad place after all. And uh, went to school at Iowa State and, uh, and then went to law school at the University of Iowa. And, uh, you know, by the way, with my day job now at uh, Student Veterans of America, I'll, I'll get into a little bit of that. But ultimately, I learned that I made all of my decisions completely the wrong way, and they turned out to be good decisions. But uh, I'd love to, to chat about that a little bit more when we get going as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, so so you spent six years in the Air Force doing really interesting work. Did you expect that that's what, what you were going to do? Like, what, what did you what did you originally want to do when you got into the Air Force versus what you actually so, did? That's that's one of those funny Air Force recruiter stories that I think probably everybody has. <laughs> um, I thought I wanted to go in and, uh, and be a computer programmer. That's what I had decided that I wanted to do way back in 1987. And my recruiter uh, did what all recruiters do and, and told me something that was half true and said, well, I don't have any slots for that. But if you sign up to go open general, that's that's the way to go. And so I said, all right, well, I'll do that then. And, you know, I'll take whatever tests I need to take. And when I get in, we'll figure out what I'm going to do. And he said, yeah, yeah, you test really well. So you'll you'll get a good job in the Air Force. It'll probably be computer programming. Um, and I'm like, OK, fine. Works for me. And so I got in and I took all of the tests that I needed to take. And then they said, hey, there's this this job that uh, we'd love to have you do. And um, we can't tell you anything about it. Everything's classified. And I said, well, that that sounds sort of weird. Why would I want to go do something that I don't have any idea what it what it is? He says, well, you know, it's the thing that takes the the highest scores in the Air Force to get into. And, and we think you'd be good at it. And, and again, I have no idea whether that's true or not. But that's what they tell you when you're <laughs> in the middle of, of making decisions. Sounds and like you had the so, same recruiter I had, by the way. It's exactly the same everywhere <laughs> in the world, I think, having worked with a lot of recruiters and the recruiting commands now yeah. um, after I've been out. But the interesting thing was I, I actually got into school and, and learned an awful lot about electronics and the way things uh, you know, worked at a microchip level and all of the uh, different systems repair stuff and, and so on. I, I learned how to solder to NASA specifications. So if I ever want to go to work for SpaceX and solder, I suppose I have the training to do that. And, and then eventually our recruiter told us just, uh, not our recruiter, our, our training uh, sergeant told us a little bit more about it. And um, then we found out just a tiny bit more when we moved over from our basic fundamental electronics courses into our, our technical training school where we were going to spend the next six months. And, and what they told us is we're going to teach you all about these systems and what they do, but we still can't tell you anything about the organization. Everything's classified top secret and none of you have top secret clearances yet. So, um, you know, did a little bit more school and, and spent a little bit more time and then found out uh, what the organization was even called, you know, the Air Force Technical Applications Center. 
and where we were likely to to be stationed you know they they gave us a list of three or four places that weren't classified and said oh there's another dozen that are classified that we can tell you about later but not yet and uh most of you are going to go to california so i uh, i spent a year in denver uh, going to school at lowry air force base which by the way is now closed and and a beautiful conversion of that uh, base into uh, mixed use development and really cool to go visit whenever i go back to denver and then i went out to california and, and went to mcclellan air force base where I spent a couple of years out there in the maintenance depot and working on all of the equipment from all over the world as it went back and forth into uh, the U.S. and all the other countries that we were at and, and got repaired and sent back out and got to know a bunch of people really well and, and then started bothering our, uh, our assignment folks for where, get, where can I go next? What kind of place overseas can I go? Where can I you know, see the world? Because that's what I signed up for. And, and they said, well, you know, we'll send you TDY to Alaska for two weeks in October. How does that sound? And, and so, you know, I got, I got to see snow for a week and I said, uh, no, this is not my thing. And, and uh, then they said, well, how, how about Turkey? And I said, well, that sounds really interesting. And, and about a month later, they said, nope, guy who was in Turkey decided to stay. You can't go to Turkey. Um, so then it was, uh, how about Spain? And I'm like, yep, sign me up. Say, Spain sounds fantastic. And and so I spent two and a half years in Spain from uh, 90 to 93, and uh, Spain hosted the Olympics in 92, and they uh, hosted the World Fair in 92, and they were cultural capital of Europe in 92. And so uh, my uh, 11 friends who were stationed there with me and I got to see an awful lot of, of Spain and the things that were going on then, and, and then I got out. And uh, that was that was my Air Force career. So when you when you got out, what was the what was the experience like for you? Did, was it an easy transition for you? Did you have an idea what you guys were, what were you what you were going to do next, or was it just I'm going to get out now and, and figure it out? Uh, I think it was mostly I'm going to get out now and figure it out. With the only exception being I knew I wanted to go back to school at that point. And uh, I'll tell I'll tell a little bit of a of a story about how I decided to go to school. Um, my last name is Schmeling and it's spelled with one L and everybody always puts two L's in it. And one day I was in our detachment library, you know, the advantages of being in a little tiny uh, detachment, you get all these additional duties. And, you know, one of mine was maintaining our detachment library. And I, I picked up a book off the, the shelf and the title of the book was one L and I'm, you know, always telling people, no, it's just one L. So I picked up this book and it was Scott Tarot's um, book about his first year of law school at Harvard. And, and I started reading it. And this is a guy who's about 25. He's got kids. He's married. And I said, well, if this guy can do it, I can do it. And decided I was going to go to law school. Um, that's my informed decision-making piece, you know, not <laughs> the best way to make a decision. Um, but I decided I was going to go to law school. And so I knew that if I was going to go to law school, I needed to go get an undergraduate degree first. And that's where I started my second um, poor decision-making process, which was, okay, I'm going to go back to Iowa. I'm going to figure out where I'm going to go to school. And the only thing I know is that the University of Iowa has a great law school, so I want to go to the University of Iowa Law School. And the only piece of advice that I got that was good advice is go somewhere else besides where you want to go to law school for your undergrad degree. That way you get a little diversity of experience. And so I looked around at Iowa and Iowa State and the University of Northern Iowa, and I made a decision to go to Iowa State University because it wasn't Iowa. Um, that's probably not the best way to make a college decision. Uh, but you know, it turned out okay. It was a good school. I got a, I got a degree there and then I, I went over to Iowa for the, uh, law school experience, which was fantastic. And so when you got done with law school, did you then, you know, go apply to be an intern at a law firm or a page or what was that next step for you? 
Um, for me, it was the next step of, of being an older non-traditional law student and not having conformed to the expectations of those law firms. And so I started applying to law firm jobs and all of them said, well, why didn't you do an internship or a clerkship while you were still in school? And I said, because nobody told me I needed to. And I think that's sort of the story of uh, of student veteran experience is, you know, so many of us are first generation college students. We don't know what we don't know. And sometimes we don't know how to ask the right questions. And so I I didn't know that I needed to do that. And instead, I went to school full time during those summers because I was married and I had kids and I wanted to get through school and then go to work as quickly as I could. But, um, you know, like most veterans, I was adaptable and an opportunity presented itself. And uh, one of my professors said, well, why don't you stay here and run this disability law and policy center? So now I've gone from being an electronics tech in the Air Force to, uh, you know, running a disability law and policy center at the University of Iowa College of Law, where I've just graduated. And that was my uh, introduction to what my next part of my my career was going to be. And I spent the next uh, 17 years in uh, uh, higher education. Nice. So we've been talking to James Schmeling. He's the co-founder of uh, Neurals, which is a 3D printing uh, packaging supply company. And we're going to talk about that soon. But James, can we pay a, a quick bill? Absolutely. Cool. So today's episode of the Veteran Founder Podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Media Relations, Publicize, handles all the communications with the media and any content content required to do this, press releases, editorials, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package that's right for your future of your business. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. Uh, so we're back talking to James Schmeling, and he was just telling us about his uh, fun and exciting world of law. <laughs> well, Josh, you know, it was an interesting area, and uh, I, I ran that Disability Law and Policy Center, and then I had the opportunity to go out to Syracuse University and do the same thing there with another Disability Law and Policy Center um, that we founded and and built at Syracuse. And, you know, the thing that I learned about myself is I like to build things and I like to build new organizations. And I guess that's where the, the word entrepreneur comes in. And, and that is, you know, really thinking about how you can do new things within an organization without resources and, and without necessarily a lot of uh, authority and, and ability to do that um, and what you can make out of that. So I built another um, research center out at Syracuse based on the model that we had built at Iowa. And that, uh, that quickly grew to a team of, you know, about 35 folks and $30 million, give or take something like that in funding. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a great opportunity. And that's where I learned how to build uh, teams that were internal and external to organizations and bring in contractors and learn how to do all sorts of uh, coordinating and writing and, uh, you know, grant funding and, and all the other kinds of things that go with running a, an academic research center in a, in a college. But it was also the place that I, I got to understand a lot about what resources uh, students were and you know how they want to learn and do something that's practical and add to their portfolios and demonstrate you know what they're um, what they're going to do in the rest of their life and and find out you know what it is that interests them and so I got to work with a lot of really cool graduate students and law students and you know business students and you know you name it across the board public relations and uh, journalism students and 
and I, you know, really enjoyed that part of, of academia. But, you know, it was disability law and policy, and it was sort of an interest area because of what I had done in law school with the faculty members who I had worked with and, and their interest areas. But uh, it, was, it was also sort of disconnected from, you know, who I was. And, and so then I think that was the next step for me is uh, building the Institute for Veterans and Military Families and co-founding that with uh, Mike Haney, who is a faculty member at Syracuse. He's now a, a vice chancellor at Syracuse University and, and just having the opportunity to do stuff back related to veterans again. What was the connection there with Syracuse and why, why was Syracuse the right place to build this? Well, that was really an interesting piece. So, you know, Syracuse was an innovative place. They had a need to do research and bring in external funding for purposes of, of rankings and things like that. And the reason that it became really interesting and, and an opportunity to build IVMF started, you know, four years earlier when I first got there. I was doing work on business startups by people with disabilities. And, you know, the reason that people with disabilities often start their own businesses is because they don't have a lot of other opportunities sometimes uh, because of discrimination or, or other reasons like that. Sometimes they need to build their own schedules. Sometimes they need to have the flexibility to take care of their own health needs and and you name it. So they're, they're looking to do something that will give them an advantage in the workplace and starting a, a business and, and uh, being an entrepreneur is often a great way to do that. And at the same time, Mike Haney was founding the Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities. So we got to know each other a little bit from my work on disability and entrepreneurship and his work as a, a professor of entrepreneurship and uh, having his Ph.D. in entrepreneurship studies and, and so on. Um, also a Colorado connection, by the way. He was at the University of Colorado Boulder getting his Ph.D. while he was also teaching at the Air Force Academy. Nice. So there's another Air Force uh, connection as well. But we got to know each other around this entrepreneurship boot camp for veterans with disabilities. And, you know, instead of just being uh, a criteria for entry into the program, what we were able to do is turn it into uh, a source of content and a source of strength for these entrepreneurs. And specifically, you know, looking at disability, you know, somebody with a disability has an opportunity to learn how to deal with a bureaucracy, particularly if you're thinking about the VA and the bureaucracy related to disability determinations and their office of um, veteran business development and other things like that. And that's an interesting skill set to take into entrepreneurship where you have to think about business licensure and tax compliance and, you know, you name it. And, you know, so this is a skill set that they're bringing in. They also, because of the disability factor, have often had the opportunity to manage teams who are responsible for their care or to manage their schedules or to manage and balance the obligations that they have outside of work for um, disability care, medical care, any of those sorts of things. And so you can apply all of those things in to entrepreneurship. And, and so that's how we got to know each other. Nice. And so IVMF explained that a little bit. That, so when you created the Institute for, military, for Veterans and Military Families, the precipice was to just give them a, a place, a better place for educational and resource and access. Uh, but it was specifically for folks with a, a, you know, service-disabled, service-related disablement. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an interesting component of it. So when we 
when we built IVMF, it took programs that Mike had already started, the Entrepreneurship Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities, for instance, and moved it in there. But what IVMF did that was, I think, special was to say, we're going to have a whole of university effort, which is focused on how Syracuse University can apply its expertise to veteran issues, period. Whether that was disability issues or education issues or employment issues. And, and we built it with an explicit focus on working with the private sector, followed by a focus on working with government. So we worked with companies like J.P. Morgan Chase as they built the Veteran Jobs Mission, which when we started in 2011, they were starting the Veteran Jobs Mission in 2011 with 11 companies and a pledge to hire 100,000 veterans over nine years. That group and that coalition later has grown to well over a couple of hundred companies, and they've hired half a million veterans almost. And wow. when you look at, at that and their commitment now is, I think, a million veteran hires by 2020, um, we were able to build something that was focused on helping them. And applying the the assets of a research university to do that, whether it was the business school or the public policy school or the journalism and mass communication school to tell the stories or the engineering school uh, and, and the information studies school to build the uh, training and education programs um, for a variety of cyber technology, cybersecurity, um, and, and other sorts of things and, and really think about how to how to sustain that. And so I spent four years doing that with uh, Mike and the team there. And, and as we did that, we grew other programs for entrepreneurship. Um, we built out a veteran women entrepreneurship program called VWISE. And we built for the Small Business Administration their portfolio of uh, transition programs for veterans called Boots to Business. And, you know, that was part of the transition assistance program, teaching veterans entrepreneurship. Um, it was really an initial exposure to entrepreneurship. And I got to teach in those programs and I, and I got to train um, veteran entrepreneurs on what it was to be a business owner. And I focused on uh, human resources and, and all all of the talent acquisition pieces in particular and you know talked about how to build teams and how to understand you know what a really rare and important component um human talent is to uh to a business so it. that was where I, I had my real significant exposure to veteran yeah. entrepreneurship that's awesome. So I wanted to give you some time to talk a little bit about Neurals. So you have this new project that you're working on called Neurals and it's 3D printed packaging and yep. supply chain. Tell us a little bit, what what gave you this idea and why do you believe that this is something that needs to be disrupted? Well, so this is the, the great part where everything that I just told you about ties back to this. So <laughs> one of my colleagues is a guy by the name of Shea Colson, and he was an information studies student at Syracuse while I was on the staff at Syracuse. And we got to know each other pretty well there doing some of the work on uh, veterans and project management and cybersecurity and information technology and, and all of those sorts of things because he was an assistant to the dean of the the uh, information studies school, the iSchool at Syracuse. And we had stayed in touch over the years. He had uh, graduated and gone on to work for the Department of the Treasury and done some other things in uh, technology consulting and 
and so on. And he had started with a couple of his colleagues, uh, uh, two Daves who are uh, partners in uh, one's a partner in a law firm, another's an attorney in the law firm, out in Spokane, and and they had been looking at what are disruptive ideas, and 3D printed packaging was was one of those ideas. And Shay called me one day and said, you know, the company that your wife works for, we think would be a great uh, company to buy the patents that we've been working on. Would you help us make connections? To that company, and and so I did, and you know I made the connections to the company, and I said, hey, this is a great group of folks. They've got some interesting IP. They'd like to sell it. Would love to talk to you and broker that deal. And so they came and, and did that, and the company wasn't interested. And so you know a couple months later, they called me and said, hey, we've got a couple of companies that are really interested in looking at um, buying this, but would you make one more approach to this this company your wife works with and say, you know, are you interested in this? And, and I said, you know what, I, I will do that, but send me all of your material because I really want to understand what it is that you're doing and be able to make a really good pitch this time. Because last time they weren't as interested as I thought they would be. And I think maybe it's because I didn't pitch it right. And so they sent me all of the material and uh, I really dove into it. And my next call was back to Shay instead of the company. And I said, Shay, here's the deal. I, I don't want to help you sell these patents. What I want to do is help build a company around this because I think that these patents are disruptive. And so let me buy the patents. Let's build a company and we will figure out how to do this collaboratively and um, and disrupt this industry, packaging. And you know, it took him a little while to talk his partners into giving it some consideration. And so then I, I brought in another one of my colleagues and we said, let's start this company. And we, you know, we had a, a whole host of, of patents that were filed. And then we began looking at some other innovations and did some invention around those and, and filed some more patents. And I'll, I'll dive into all of those in a minute. But that's how I came to this is because of those connections with really innovative students. What I love is that one of your co-founders is a good friend of uh, Patriot Bootcamps, Fred Wellman from Scout Communications. Love that guy. When I was in D.C., uh, we got a chance to hang out, and I hadn't seen him. Uh, I hadn't met him face-to-face until that time, but we had a great time, and Fred's such a good – just good people. So you've definitely yeah, aligned yourself with really good people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the best part for me is, you know, what I've learned while I was in higher education and working with all these really smart and interesting people is align yourself with people who are smart, who are interesting, who are focused on the things that they want to do and interested in doing those things and and fun to work with as a result. And so, you know, Fred and I uh, co-founded the company and uh, with Shay as uh, their third co-founder. Um, one of the patent attorneys is a board member with us. And, you know, they're all doing the things that they love in this company, which is, you know, what I really like about it. So the, the first patent that we, we filed and were granted was on 3D printed packaging. And that is, you know, how do we print a package around an item in part or in full? And the idea being that because local manufacturing is um, – really advancing right now with 3D printing and other sorts of local manufacturing, but packaging is really not available to people. You know, right now, local manufacturers have a couple of options. You know, they put it in a cardboard box, they put it in a gift bag, they sell it in a in a paper bag, and that's it. Um, you know, otherwise, you've got a contract for manufacturing and packaging, and most packaging is is manufactured overseas there's a minimum quantity to order for packaging it's fairly expensive to do the design and we thought you know what if you can do all of this with 3d printed 
materials, you can design a package that will protect the item that's inside of it and that can be manufactured on the spot. And yes, any individual package is going to be a little more expensive than an individual package is if you buy 10,000 of them. But let's be honest, we're not manufacturing 10,000 of the same items when we're talking about local manufacturing and 3D printed um, items. So you're talking about customization, you're talking about one-offs or two or, or 10, you know, mm-hmm. at a time. And so having packaging that you can print around the item and customize it and print the internal supports, you know, to make sure something isn't damaged or print it in a, a way that has a display capacity so you can show what it is that you're um, printing or doing anything related to on-package instructions or advertising or marketing material. All of those things have you know, really interesting promise. And so we continue to uh, build out that patent portfolio. You know, the team has been working together on it since about 2013, 2014, and continues to um, put together all of the the different ideas for how packaging can be used and how it can promote the manufacture of, of locally manufactured and customized goods and, and so on. So, you know, that was the first one. Uh, the second one was around uh, packaging multiple items. So how can we put a bunch of things in one package or one package that has a whole bunch of segments or five or ten packages that are then packaged in a larger container, um, again, 3D printed, because material costs are coming down so fast and printing speeds are evolving so quickly. And, you know, our first patent is valid until 2034. So nice. we've got a long runway yeah. ahead of us, and we're the only people in the country who can 3D print a package around an item. Nice. So we continue to do that innovation. So how, how important – it sounded like this company really uh, started around these patents that were being you know, put together. How important do you think it is around IP for, for an early-stage startup to be concerned about? Like why, why is that so important? I think in a nutshell, it's valuation. And there have been a bunch of studies on the value of IP to startup companies in their first and second and third rounds of valuation. And every patent um, that you add to your portfolio, even if it's just filed and not awarded, averages about $3.4 million in value for the company. Wow. And so it's a, it's a big value yeah. piece. Now, that doesn't um, negate the idea that you have to have a market and you have to have traction sure. and you have to have some of those sorts of things, which frankly is the piece that we're struggling with right at the moment um, because everybody says, okay, let me see the printer that prints the package. And, and our answer is it's not about the printer. It's actually about the intellectual property and the entire ecosystem that we build around this and what we're going to do with the next iterations of this technology. And, you know, so I'll talk a little bit about that as well, but those those patents add value. Yeah. And so I think that's the piece. And, you know, it's a long-term value. So when a patent's issued, it's 20 years from the date that it's filed. And, you know, as you, you may remember, the United States changed its patent approach, and now it's a first to file. So you've got to get your patents filed and, and in to the patent office before you can actually talk about what your technology is, because it used to be first to invent. So if you could show an invention then you could file the paperwork. Now it's the opposite. You've got to file the paperwork and then build your invention and show it and talk to the, the company. So, you know, I think IP is important and its, its importance is changing. And how difficult is it to do it right? In other words, when you're filing your patent, obviously there are, you know, 
things that you have to do, paperwork you have to file, sentences you have to sp- spell out very specifically. H- how hard is that to do if, if an entrepreneur decides to do that on their own or find somebody that's you know, maybe yeah. more, a more economical choice? So, you know, this is where I'm going to say, A, I'm glad that I have a law degree and I can understand a lot of what my sure. lawyers talk about. <laughs> um, I, and B, I would tell you, I'm really glad that we have two patent attorneys on our team and not as people who we've hired for their patent expertise, but as people who are inventors with us and understand the ins and outs of that patent system. And, and I, I can't tell you how much money that saves us. So, you know, we have spent with our attorneys doing this work. Um, nearly $100,000 on our IP uh, protection. And that's with our team members doing the work themselves. And so we have to pay all the filing fees and all of those sorts of things, but we're not paying for the attorney's time. I will tell you, though, that that's worth that that investment to have those patents filed because it's the only way you can protect yourself in our system now. So I, I think I can't you know understate that it is really critical there, and I know it's expensive, but it's an investment that's really worthwhile, I think. Yeah, and I, I tell entrepreneurs, too, because you know, I've gone through this endeavor myself, that finding the right lawyer is going to save you headache in the long run, and I, and I've, I, I beat that drum constantly. And so you know, when you're talking about IP, that makes perfect, perfect sense. You want to find somebody that knows what they're doing, and you spend a little bit now, but you save yourself the heartache later on. And I think that's the same thing for anybody who's on your business team. You know, you need the right lawyers, you need the right accountant, you need the right business advisors. And sometimes that's going to cost you a little bit of money up front, but it's it's money well spent to get the right team around you and who will take your phone call and say, hey, I just want to bounce this idea off you. Or I want to know, do I need to worry about this? Should I do that? Yeah. And investing in that network of support and that team that's around you is a really critical piece of it. I also think that's one of the reasons that it's important when you're thinking about your founding team to get the right cohort together. And you know, it's not always about technical skills. Sometimes it's about all of those business development or yeah. uh, accounting and finance or um, fundraising and development or, or other things. And getting that right team of paid advisors and unpaid uh, advisors is important as is having the right co-founders. Yeah, and, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because I know that it's definitely something that you're really passionate about, making sure that you build the right team. But I want to go back to Neural. So you guys have these patents, and you, you talked yep. a little bit about the struggle to find the right product market fit. Do you think, what do you think, why do you think that is, and, and how are you getting around that, uh, that, tr- that challenge? Well, what we're doing right now is doing the innovation in a couple of key areas. We looked at one area in particular that we think has a, a strong potential, which is luxury packaging. Um, luxury goods um, have novel packaging, which increases their value to be frank. Mm-hmm. And it's a, about an $11 billion a year industry for luxury packaging alone. And so the packaging around watches or the packaging around handbags or around jewelry, any of those sorts of things, um, or uh, liquor and alcohol, high, high value um, liquor and alcohol can be very, very expensively packaged. And that adds to the prestige of the item. Um, If you think about uh, unboxing an iPhone or another uh, laptop or any of those sorts of things, the um, packaging adds to the experience. That's why there are all these YouTube videos of, of unboxing things, right? So where we decided we would start is in luxury packaged goods, specifically watches, and working on building out the packaged um, uh, box, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and what can be built into that, that box. 
And I think that's where some of our other um, ideas that, that I can talk about in a minute, our other IP filings, uh, really play into that as well. The other place that we think is really, really useful and interesting is pharmaceuticals and uh, packaging of medications, and particularly high-value or very um, important medications that have to be on a rigid timeline and, and things like that. And the idea that you can have functional packaging around um, prescription medications that will allow you to do things like see is is somebody taking the medication you know are your loved ones taking the medications that they need to stay healthy or in a clinical trial do we know when medications were taken so that we can validate that they're effective or safe um, you know can we look at packaging of, of multiple medications in one particular package so that people can take, you know, their Monday morning at 7 a.m. Uh, items out of one little container rather than having to dump everything out on a, a kitchen table and say, all right, I'm going to put this pill in Monday and this pill on Tuesday and this pill on Wednesday. And okay, now this pill goes in Monday and this one Tuesday and this one on Wednesday. And oh, this one goes in on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at noon and this one in the evening. You know, can we actually do things like 3D print the the little pill box and then you know fda has actually given approval to 3d print medications can we print the medications directly wow. into that pill box and then can we close it with a sensor that's that's um, going to tell you when it's been opened or or if it has been opened you know how do you do all of those sorts of things right so that you can add tremendous value and then we get into the other things that i think are really fascinating for me and that's application of blockchain Hmm. And, you know, it's it's uh, fascinating to me because we're seeing all the hype about blockchain and all the hype about, you know, payment mechanisms like Bitcoin and everything else. But I really think the potential for blockchain is in the supply chain hmm. and looking at uh, counterfeits and looking at where was something manufactured and who was the technician who um, filled this particular package and what happened in uh, the supply chain from the time that that package was filled and sealed and where was it shipped and how can we write to the blockchain what the temperature was or what the moisture um, in the air was and, and did it have the potential to spoil the medication or other things like that. You know, what is it that blockchain can do for us in all of those? And so we filed a, a, and we're waiting um, to hear the adjudication on this. It's been published now, so I can talk about it a little bit. But we, we filed a, a patent on blockchain-enabled packaging. Hmm. In other words, how can, when you're printing a package, how can you simultaneously do an entry into the blockchain that tells you that that package has been printed, what's in the package, who packaged it, where it was packaged, and then have that entry in that blockchain follow that package all the way through delivery. And more important even, you know, if you think about FedEx scanning something and saying, oh, it's delivered, and that's the end of what you know about your package, now we take it inside the house. You know, in a, a pharmaceutical package, you can tell has it been opened or not, has it been used or not. Um, in a watch uh, box, you can see did somebody take it out of the the package and did they wear it on Monday and Wednesday or is this a Friday night only wear? You know, how often has it been rewound? You know, is there a watch winder in the package? You know, what's the life cycle of that watch? How many wear cycles has it had based on taking it in and out of the container? And can you write those things to a blockchain through um, an RFID chip or a, a Wi-Fi chip in it? You know, how can we do the things to track everything 
that packaging can enable. And so that, you know, is an interesting piece for me. I think blockchain is such an interesting uh, protocol in and of itself. And there are so many use cases that we're just really not even scratching the surface. We are so far above, you know, before scratching the surface. And I think supply chain is just perfect for for what that is. Um, I I agree with you. And I think there's some really interesting people in uh, who have gone through, you know, Patriot Bootcamp in that, you know, I think of of folks like uh, Daniel Stanton and Secure Marking, who is a, an alum of of the program and is writing on supply chain issues right. and talking about these? So yeah, it's just it's, great stuff. Yeah, there's and there's a lot of innovation too, and there's a lot of room for it as well because it's sort of the wild west right now, and a lot of people don't. It's like the, when the cloud was first becoming a thing, people didn't wait. Wait, I don't have to buy a server anymore. I don't have to you know invest. Ten thousand dollars and put it in a room with cooling and and this is the same way. People really don't understand how to how to really take advantage of it. And and I love that you guys are taking this application and and uh, and sort of making it in parallel uh, valuable for folks that could use it in a way that that could grow their business. It's great. I love it. I, and I think that's the thing that's most interesting to me. And if you think about that on a local basis and, and all the people who are going to be able to do manufacturing and, you know, all of the use cases for 3D printing all over the, the country, and now we've put packaging in their hands as well, I, I think that's what's really fun for me. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so we've been talking to James Smelling, uh, CEO and founder of Neurals, a 3D printing, uh, you know, custom packaging company. Uh, we're going to do another quick commercial break. Is that cool, James? Absolutely. Perfect. So this time we're going to talk about CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings, which I get that all the time with my CPA firm. It drives me insane. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Josh and Carmen sent you. Uh, We've been talking to James Schmeling. He has done a myriad of things, and I'm Frustrated because we have like less than 15 minutes left in the show, and I have so many other things I want to talk to you about. You do IVMF and Student Veterans of America and this new project of yours, Neurals, which is a 3D printing, manufacturing, custom packaging company. I want to talk a little bit about team. Uh, we, t- we touched on it earlier, but I, th- I think is supremely important. Each of our episodes t- seem to have this common theme where somebody has a specialty in one area, and you really have this figured out for yourself. And everything that you've done, whether that's IVMF or Student v- Veterans of America or this new uh, company, Neurals, you have put together this rock star team of people that just just knock it out of the park. What what is that secret? How do you figure out how to put these people with each of these different uh, strengths and weaknesses and just be able to put them together to grow something of, of significance? Well, I think for me, there are just a couple of things that, that really go into it. One, I like people and I, I want to see them do things that are interesting and that advance their careers. And so if I can sort of understand what makes people tick and what they want to do and why they want to do it, um, that is, you know, really a key to start building these teams. The second thing I think is a book that uh, I, I can't remember the author's name right off the top of my head, but it's the no assholes rule. And, and essentially <laughs> it's don't work with jerks. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's always been really about finding the right team and working with people who you like and partners that you like and team members that you like. And, you know, it, is, is it somebody who you think can work well with you? And, and that's not to say everybody has to have the same culture and be, you know, like each other, but, who aren't jerks to each other and and who really have a goal, I think, you know, to help 
the world. And so it, it's sort of this idea that if you can do well by doing good, maybe that's the thing you should be doing. And so I, I think that's a big part of it. I think the second piece is to really see people's talent where they don't always see it themselves. And, you know, think about, hey, how can I help you reach this next point in your career, even if you don't know what that is? And sometimes, you know, people don't know what they're capable of. They haven't thought about it or they haven't really given much thought to what's next after this. Sure. And I always like to take into account what's next for people and how can I help them think about what's next? I don't ever see anybody as, as doing their whole career with one organization that they're with. Um, that's just not the way we do things anymore in, in this country to start with. But on top of that, it gives them an opportunity to say, oh, this is a cool thing I could do next. What does that look like? Right. Or how can I help them develop a new skill set or a new way of thinking about something and engaging with the world? And, and so I, I just like to build teams that are, are fun to work with. And, you know, I've done it in three research centers and in colleges and universities. And, you know, we're doing that now with Student Veterans of America and, and with, uh, with NURLs. And I think that's, that's been the most uh, rewarding part for me. You know, I still stay in touch with, with people who I've worked with earlier. Uh, and I'll give you an example. One person who I, I worked with many years ago at the, the University of Iowa, um, we brought her into our team and, and eventually said, you know what, this is not a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's not a good fit for you is this is not what you like to do. This is not what you want to do. This is not how you want to help people. You need to go find something else and we'll help you find it, yeah. you know, but you got to leave. And I remember her being just furious with me. Sure. And, you know, it, it was one of those challenges where I think she was very frustrated with me. And um, we did find her the right next fit. And she did that. And, you know, two or three years later, she said, you know what? You were right. I needed to go do this other thing, um, which was great. And then two or three years after that, she said, okay, I'm ready to come back and do policy work, which is what she'd been doing for us. I'm ready to do that now. I've been doing this individual advocacy work. And the place that I want to do this policy work, you know somebody there. Um, can you make an introduction to me um, for for that? And I did. And um, fast forward, uh, she got the job. And um, five years later, she's been doing this policy work here in D.C. And, you know, we've had lunch a couple of times. And, and she said, you know, I still remember being so mad at you because you told me I needed to do something else. And I've done that with half a dozen other people in my career. And all of them later have said, man, I'm glad you said that because you were right. I, I needed to see that. And I needed to learn that. I needed to do that. And that was where my growth was going to come. And I'm so much happier now. So I, I think there's this this facet of finding what the right thing is for people and how do we help them and, and what, how can we do what, what's good for everybody. And by doing that, they take an interest back in you and your organization and they're going to give back because they know you care. You're human. Yeah. That's, that's such a great perspective to that. Talk a little bit about culture and why it's so important to establish an early stage of your startup. I know that you and I have talked about this a bit, but I would love to hear your thoughts about, you know, establishing a great culture and what that means uh, as you're bringing in more team members. Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to that entirely. <laughs> I, I think it goes back to those two foundational pieces that I, that I said, find interesting people who, who like to do what they're doing and don't work with jerks. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you can get those two things right, I think a lot of the rest of it follows. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to work on other things, you know, like high-performing teams and getting things done. And, and I'm as much of a procrastinator as anybody and, <laughs> and have to get motivated in the right way and, and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I, I know what I have to do to do that. 
But I, I don't know sometimes how you impart that culture other than finding the right people who are willing to get in the trenches and do the work with you. Yeah, one of the things that I, I learned early in my career uh, was I was a, an early employee at Twilio, and Jeff Lawson, who's their CEO, uh, w- worked at Amazon for a long time, and uh, I worked at StubHub. And and what he what he did when he created the company is he did these things called nine things, and there were basically nine values that really outlined what was important. It was things like be humble, draw the owl, all these really cool things that really um, that that centered around what the company was going to do and how it was going to be built. And so uh, when I created a company, we did the same thing. We sort of listed out some things that we felt were important. It was a very democratic process with early employees. And as a result, what we could kind of do is when something went wrong or someone made a bad decision, we could go back to these values and say, okay, point to which one you went to or that you were thinking about when you made this decision. And if they really couldn't point to one of these values, then they were held accountable for it, right? It wasn't that they were fired or kicked out or anything. It was just, it was a way for us to go back and say, these are what are important to us, and it should guide you as you make your decisions to grow this company. And so that was one way we were able to solve that uh, problem, just by you know following in the footsteps of somebody like Jeff Lawson and, and, and Twilio at this point is a public company uh, and have like 1,300 people in their employees. So th- they're doing something right in that, which I love. I, th- I think that's great. And I think if you can establish your values early, uh, that's a fantastic way to, to create culture. And that was one of the things that we did with Neurals. We actually um, worked with a consultant as we were doing our, uh, our company branding. And that sounds like an odd place to do that work. But <laughs> we actually started with, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. How do you want to change the world? Who do you want to do this for? Why does it matter? And why are you personally doing all this? And we did that with all five of our team members. Uh, and worked through this process with our branding consultant and, you know, really understood what are our core values? What's our mission? What what are all those sorts of things? And, you know, I don't have them all in in front of me right now or I'd I'd go through them all. But, you know, the idea was this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is what we want to change in the world. And this is why and how. And this is what we're going to do. And that went into um, our, our positioning and it went into other kinds of things that, you know, sound sort of silly, but, but our logo and our name and, and what our name, you know, means, you know, neurals is, is sort of an odd word, right? And, and maybe most of your listeners don't know what it is, but if you, if you uh, have tools and they have this little ridges in them, the little micro diamond edging, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that, so you can get a grasp on them. Or on a, a cabinet, the knob on a cabinet has that ridge around that little knob, so you can get a, a firm grasp on it. That's what a neural <laughs> is. Neurals are, are the things that you get a grasp on. It. And, and for us, it was how do you get a grasp on your supply chain? How do you yeah. get a grasp on your data? How do you it's get brilliant. a grasp on, on all those things? And so we were thinking about, you know, we're, we're a knowledge management company focused on manufacturing packaging and how does packaging let you really get a handle on your business and what you're doing with your customers and all of those sorts of things. So it, it was an interesting way to get there, but that's how we started. That's awesome. There's another book, and uh, you were talking about you know why, but there's a, a book called Start With Why, uh, written by Simon Sinek that I highly recommend every entrepreneur read because it is... It is supremely important to understand not what you're doing, but why you're doing it. 
You know, you yeah. just need to have that, you know, start with why, understand what it is that you're creating as a company, and then that will ultimately drive where you go with your company. So I love that you guys had started with that um, as sort of like this endeavor around what your brand was going to be defined by, because it's so important. And I don't think enough entrepreneurs understand that piece. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think starting with why is really interesting, because for me, um, the start with why in the nonprofit space, and the education space is easy. Mm-hmm. The start with why in the for-profit space was a little bit more interesting to me. Uh, and, it, and it was like, well, why a for-profit company? Well, to make money, right? I mean, sure. that's, that's the first answer. Um, but, but the other things are, why is packaging important? What is it going to do? Why is this even something that anybody cares about? And as you dive into it, there are tons and tons of reasons. You know, I didn't start out thinking I wanted to do work related to packaging. But as I dove into it and really understood the packaging ecosystem, it's pretty amazing what it does in our supply chain mm-hmm. with foods, with products, with, um, you know, returns, with keeping uh, the investment for people that they've they've made in one piece so that it doesn't break as it goes across the the world. And as you know, we think about the shipping worldwide and global business packaging became really, really fascinating to me. And I, I think, you know, there are, there's a couple of books that I would recommend. Um, one is logistics clusters, which is just sort of a geeky read that is about why we ended up with hubs in Singapore and Rotterdam and, and other places around the world and, and why, um, why those matter and packaging is a a story in that and then the other one is uh, the smartest places on earth which is really talking about how groups of people um, end up doing creative things and so many of those are around colleges and universities and learning hubs and you know i'd recommend those two books uh, as as things to read for people who are starting businesses too i love it uh, so we have about five minutes left i know this, this hour just goes by so quick um but i really want to get to one of the, some of the learnings that you have gone through as you've gone through these journeys, you've gone through the nonprofit, now you're going through the for-profit. What is the one thing you would impart on entrepreneurs that uh, you learn the hard way that you would like our listeners to take away from this hour? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it's hard, right? I, I think, yeah. there's I so mean, much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things that, that you learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that that you got to learn the hard way sometimes and and maybe uh, wish that you didn't is how to work with people and what drives people and the things that you do and say and how you make them feel. Uh, You know, I think uh, Maya Angelou said people will never forget how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that's right. And, And I think that taking into account what you do and how you do it. And, you know, you might have the best reasons and best of intentions as you're doing things. Sometimes somebody's not going to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And um, if you can help everybody understand why you're doing what you're doing, even if it's painful in the moment, I think that you're better served. Um, And I think that that's so hard because you can get some really awful hard feelings in teams Mm -hmm. if you don't do it right. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's great. I love it. So James, where can people, where can people find you? Well, online, definitely at uh, neurals.com. And then on LinkedIn, um, James Schmeling, you can connect with me that way. And on Twitter, Jay Schmeling, you can just uh, ignore the politics for the moment. Tough time. (laughs) I actually deleted my Twitter account. I just couldn't take it anymore. It's just, just too much. 
Uh, maybe it is, uh, yeah. but it, there there isn't any more rapid moving news source to, no. to keep tabs on what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and there's some really cool and interesting people there, too. Yeah. Uh, no question about all of that. We could spend an hour just talking about that, I'm sure. No question. We'll, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll table it here, and you and I will grab a beer the next time you and I see each other. Looking forward to it. Hopefully that'll be in Denver in uh, two months. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. James, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. You've been listening to the Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups and entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in next week and every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Learn, Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.